Happy Sabbath, everyone. Good to see you all. I think I'm going to mention this now uh, as we're getting started, that as I mentioned last week, we are now in the Gospel of John, looking at uh, the seven signs of the Gospel of John. We'll learn more about that as we go. But uh, as, as a part of this series leading up to Easter, we want you to have, uh, if you would like, a copy of one of my favorite um, sort of modern contemporary translations or paraphrases, maybe that's no, a translation of uh, of John's gospel. It's small like this. It fits in a little little pamphlet. It's called the voice revealed the true story of the last eyewitness. And it's really beautiful. It's written uh, in a way that I, I really enjoy. Um, for example, when there are people talking, they actually make it look kind of like a play script, like you're reading Shakespeare or something like that, where it says Jesus, colon, you know, and they, and they talk. And there are little notes that come along. So this would be great. Um, we, have, we have enough, I think, for, we could start with one for family, but my guess is we'll have more than that. So if you want one after church, I will have a box full of them. Um, you notice they're also small enough that would make a great gift to someone else, maybe even to say we're in this series in the Gospel of John at church. Would you like to uh, learn more and come? So these are available for you if you would like. And, uh, and of course, they're for you to read, <laughs> for you to follow along in the Gospel of John as, as we go through this, which is a, a beautiful gospel. So please feel invited uh, to do that, whether it's in your own translation or uh, this one that you can pick up after church. I, uh, I just I love coming to church on Sabbath morning, as I'm sure you all do. Um, one of the reasons I love coming is because it's such a, a peaceful place, just being with y'all. We can gather together. It's affirming. We all uh, just enjoy hanging out with each other. And you can leave that stuff from the week behind. And, you know, church is that place where you just come and you can take a deep breath and relax, right? Uh, I, I love church. Um, these are our topics for today that we'll be talking about. So... Uh, <laughs> Do any of you like tension? Uh, I don't. Um, I, I learned, you know, you learn this phrase early on that people say um, that there are two topics you're not supposed to discuss at dinner time, right? Politics and religion. Well, I always had trouble with this because I realized, you know, like for one thing, I've always liked politics since I was young. And then my job is religion. And so the two things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about are like the two things... So I struggled with this for a long time until I realized um, that I hate tension even more than I like talking about these things. And so I stopped because truly these are the kinds of things that can cause tension, right? I, was, I had to do jury duty, doing my civic duty a couple of weeks ago. And um, you know how it is. You gather in that room where with probably a couple other people, a couple hundred other people who are just trying to make it through that several hours hoping that they can say they've done their civic duty without actually having to, you know, follow through and be on a jury. Um, And people have books and iPhones and whatever, just trying to make it through that time, kind of everyone in their own world. And there was this moment where I I was in my corner, everyone's kind of doing their own thing until from one corner of the room we hear, you know, well, we'll see who votes for him in 2012. And suddenly there was like this collective, like, Silent but almost tangible groan from that entire room of 200 people who are going, please, 
please don't start this conversation, right? I just want to make it through my four hours in peace, do my work, check my email, read my book, whatever. Please don't do this. If there had been a massage therapist in the room, he would have made bank because, you know, everyone, everyone is suddenly just, ah, you know, don't do, do that. Um, there are some things that just cost him. And the reason we don't like it, right? At least this is why I don't like it. Because some of these topics, these tension moments, have a way of suddenly taking a room that just feels great and dividing it, right? Polarizing it. Suddenly everyone's on this side or this side. And you find, and you know what you were doing in your mind as you went through those. Some of you went this way and this way. And tension has a way of doing that. And we don't like it. Um, so unfortunately for, for all of you who are like me and don't really like tension, our story for today, John, the, the storyteller seems intent on creating a certain kind of tension that moves people one way or the other. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and so we're going to have to read this story together. If, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along and we'll, we'll read some verses and just talk about others. But John in the story, I, as I read through this, if, if we're listening carefully, John is building up a tension in this story. And it's going to move from some kind of subtle things that begin to cause kind of that awkward feeling to, um, and spoiler alert, in the end, the people are going to plot to kill Jesus. So the tension is pretty, pretty obvious by the end of the story, right? But he, he builds it. He starts, he starts this way. If you're, if you're noticing, you can see the story. John begins by just setting a scene. It seems innocent enough. He's telling us about a pool. Uh, Jesus goes back up to Jerusalem. He's there and he goes by a pool called Bethesda, right? And he describes this pool is a place where, uh, the lame have gathered and all kinds of people who have, who have ailments. Now, if we know a little bit about the history here, the pool of Bethesda was this pool that was located just to the northeast of the temple just outside the city gate of Jesus' time. And probably it started as a pool for collecting water, but over time they found other ways of collecting water. And this place became a gathering place. This pool became a gathering place for all kinds of people who had nowhere else to go. Uh, John says the lame and the poor. Here's how one commentator who studies these kinds of things puts it. I, I thought it was uh, poignant. The prostitutes, the poorest day laborers, the tanners, because they smelled, uh, peddlers, bandits, sailors, hustlers, donkey drivers, dung collectors, and even some merchants gathered at a pool like this, right? This is a place where people who had nowhere else to go would gather during the day. Uh, these kinds of people were allowed into the city during the day to beg, to look for help, whatever it was. And then at night when the city gates would close, they were sent right back out. And so there would be these encampments right around the gates of the city of Jerusalem where these people would live. And John goes on to mention something about this porch. There were, there were this, uh, this pool of Bethesda. There were five porches or porticos, your Bible might say. Interesting. Okay, so it it may look something like this, like our Pentagon. It may have been a square and they had four gates, one on each side and then an extra one put in the middle somewhere. But somehow an architect had decided there should be five porches, five porticos in this building. Now, remember, this is a culture where everything has some kind of symbolic value. People don't just do things because, oh, well, that was a nice idea. It has symbols. So let's think for a minute. Imagine why might someone, an architect building something in the holy city of Jerusalem, choose the number five to be in their building? What does five say in, in Jewish culture? 
What's five? How about, remember this, the Torah, okay? Big deal, right, to the Jews, the Torah, the law, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, the Torah. So here, of course, in the, in the capital city, Jerusalem, the, the capital of Judaism, they would do things that would remind people of God's law, the Torah. Well, normally this would be fine, except John is kind of, maybe here's his first layer of tension. Here's a pool with five porticos that reminds people of the five books of Moses or the law. And in that pool are all these poor, haggard, begging people. Now, the law, wasn't it that that place? John may be nudging at us just a little bit, reminding us. The law was was where God lays out to Moses his blueprint for a community that is going to represent God to the entire world, right? He lays out, here's how you live in upright and righteous ways. Here's how, here's how you settle disputes fairly. Here's how you ensure that everyone in your community is cared for. The law of God, the law of Moses. So John is maybe hinting as, isn't ironic that here in this pool that symbolizes and reminds us of this beautiful blueprint God laid out are collected these poor, destitute people right in the shadow of the temple. Hmm. So he maybe starts with a little bit of tension. Then the story continues. John says, now Jesus went up to this man and he finds a, a lame man who has been lame for 38 years. Remember, this is a very long time for people who lived 40 or 50 years, a whole generation at least. He's been lame and Jesus asked him a very simple question. Do you want to be made well? The man's answer is interesting. One thing we notice is that he doesn't really answer Jesus' question, but he also says something that, for me, echoes through this story. Sir, I have no one to help me into the water. We, we hear explain that what he's talking about is that they had this, this hope that this water had healing powers, and if they got into the water, that they would be healed. And this man is saying, I have no one. To help me here again might we hear john sort of setting up a little tension what is the problem here in the shadow of the temple with all the religious leaders whose job it is to look out for the people this man has no one to help him in other words here is a place that has some problems john is saying right uh further furthermore on top of this if we're hearing this carefully, uh, this, this whole idea of healing waters that could provide healing for people if they only touch them, this was actually a pretty common practice in Roman paganism right around there. This idea that, man, if we just found the right kind of holy water and touched it, it would heal us. Could John also be saying, strange, isn't it, that these people are so desperate in the shadow of the temple that they have turned to these pagan ways of looking for some kind of superstitious healing because they have no one to help them. It's getting a little awkward, I think, as John starts to tell. He's saying, what, 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 is, what is this? There's a story I, I heard a couple times, and uh, unfortunately the person who told it to me is out of the country, so I, I needed to follow up and get the details just right. So forgive me, maybe don't quote this until you get it just right, but it goes something like this. Tony Campolo is, a, is an author, a Christian author. Many of you have probably read him. Uh, writes in the evangelical world, great books, wonderful guy. He's a sociologist, actually, and uh, he cares a lot about 
uh, issues of, of poverty and helping people and this kind of thing. And he also has a very good relationship with Loma Linda University. He goes there frequently. He's spoken at graduations at the church and, and things like this. Well, some time ago, the story goes, he was, pre- he was preaching there, and Loma Linda had just finished what, they, what, was, what it is, a beautiful organ. You, you've been to the Loma Linda church and seen that beautiful organ? Million-plus-dollar project, and it, it was just finished, so they're still feeling quite proud about this, right? And Tony Campolo, this preacher, is standing up there preaching away, and he's talking about poverty and the, the church's mission to, to help people and stuff, and he turns around and goes, And what is this? <laughs> Awkward moment, probably. <laughs> Little tension there. Apparently he's friends enough with them that he can get away with it because they invite him back. But that's one of those moments where it's like, ooh. And maybe John is starting to set up a little bit of that here in the story. Here, what, what is this, people? The shadow of the temple, the place of God where you're supposed to be caring for. And you have this pool where all these people are gathered. Well, if he's doing that, the tension has come up a notch or two. Jesus, the story goes on. Jesus actually just ignores the man's point about the healing waters and not having anyone to help him. And he simply says to the man, with all the compassion that Jesus has, arise, pick up your mat or your pallet, this thing that he sat on, and walk. And John says, very simply, so the man arose, picked up his mat, and he walked. Now, if the story ended there, it would be just a nice story about Jesus healing someone like we have some in the Gospels. However, the story is not in there, right? Because John says, oh, by the way, now that day was a Sabbath. Aha. Yes, this is, this is a problem again, right? This day is a Sabbath, John says. So no longer is this just an innocent miracle by Jesus. It is the Sabbath and Jesus is healing on it. So we have a few problems, right? First of all, You can't carry your stuff, your things, outside of your home on the Sabbath. So as this man is carrying, Matt may not be the right word. It may be like a pout, like a wooden thing. I mean, he's walking down through Jerusalem, happy that he's healed. It's pretty obvious that he's carrying something large on the Sabbath. He can't do that. That's a problem. Also a problem is that Jesus did this work of healing on the Sabbath. See, You could do things that were emergencies. If someone's life was in danger and couldn't last until sundown, you could do that. But this guy, 38 years, surely Jesus could have waited until sundown to take care of this. This also is a problem. Some of you who have grown up avenous may have thrown around the term Sabbath police in your experience at some point, right? You have, you have these experiences of, uh, of someone, maybe in your family, maybe in your church, who kind of went around making sure that people weren't doing the wrong if you went to boarding academy probably 30 years ago you you would have had this experience right checking to make sure now in this culture this is quite literal they are literally the sabbath police because remember there's no separation of church and state these are people who are literally going around enforcing the law making sure people don't break the sabbath and they've caught this man and they say you can't do that now Before we go throwing stones at these religious leaders, maybe let's try and understand and sympathize just a little bit, right? First of all, I mean, the first thing is they take Sabbath quite seriously, right? Can we relate to that? Do we know what it's like to care deeply 
about keeping Sabbath well, right? In our faith tradition, we, we care a lot about how we keep Sabbath, right? We want to obey God's command and invitation to keep Sabbath. And so we care. We can relate to that. Now, second, there was this there was this belief floating around at the time, around the time of Jesus, among the rabbis, that looked at Sabbath in a really interesting way. The rabbis, as you know, would they would argue with each other. This is what they do. And many of them had come to the conclusion, the belief that if the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, could keep one Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah would come. If they could just all collectively keep that perfect Sabbath, then the Messiah would come. There were a few other rabbis who argued and said, it's two Sabbaths. We need to keep two Sabbaths perfectly, and then the Messiah would come. But this was their belief. If we keep Sabbath just right, then God's promise will be fulfilled. God will bless us with the presence of the Messiah. So you can see why this is such a big deal. When they see this man carrying his pallet, their reaction is, guess it's not going to be this one. You know, <laughs> we've got to try again next week. And it's that disappointment of saying, when will God bless us with the Messiah? Maybe he's not doing it because we all can't get our act together, people. And so when they when the man says, well, it was someone else who told me to do that, they said, well, we got to get to this guy. He's going around telling people to break the Sabbath. This is a major problem. So can we at least sympathize a little bit with where they're coming from? I mean, isn't this kind of the the impulse that we have in in our religious lives to say, hey, God isn't going to bless us or maybe God even can't bless us when we're not following certain rules. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, don't we don't we think about this quite a bit? Uh, God is going to bless us when we're following the regulations and the way that God told us to live. And if we don't do that, why would, why can God bless us? Why would he? Doesn't seem right. And I think this is what's behind us sometimes when you see people have those overreactions of, you know, yelling at kids running through the sanctuary. Uh, Sometimes we can do that well and we say, hey, this is a a very special place, so we want to treat it well, you know. But then there's the times when you see someone go, hey, I told you not to run through. Maybe what's deep down behind that is, how is God going to bless us when we're not following what we're supposed to do? Or or sometimes when we talk about tithe, how can God bless us if we don't do this? Or the extreme would be some Christian circles in our country who start going around blaming different groups of people for the problems that happen to our country. How can God bless America when we don't follow this or this? Isn't Isn't this the great temptation of those of us who want to take our faith and religion seriously? It's that temptation to move towards the things that are, are special, the things that do matter, those, those rules and regulations and commands from God, those guidances from God, and to take those and to start to believe that, okay, God set those up so that we could find the way to life, but we take those and set them up as the main thing. We must do these things so that God will bless us. And we forget about some other things that maybe matter. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on in this story. John is starting to separate a couple of groups. Both groups care about God passionately. They are sincere people. They want to do what is right. But John has something to say to us about these groups. 
Let's, let's listen carefully as John goes through the next part of the conversation. This is, this is interesting. Okay, so uh, starting with verse 11. Listen to how these people are. That's going to be a little small, so we'll, we'll describe it. But starting with verse 11, here's, here's the story. After Jesus heals, right? Uh, no, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured. So catch, catch how John or the people describe I'll explain. This is confusing. I'll explain it in a second. Okay. So, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, the man is the one who has been cured, right? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who made me well uh, told me, take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your mat and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We're going to come back to that. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. What you have there in very, very fine print (laughs) is a, a, a rehash of that. If we listen carefully, it's very interesting that we start to see some distinctions here between John and the way he describes it. This next slide may, may summarize a little bit more. Here's, here's what all that says. <laughs> For John, the way he describes the man every time through this story is the man is the one who was healed. When the religious leaders talk about this guy, he's the man who broke the Sabbath. Every time. When... The man talks about Jesus. Jesus is the one who healed him. When the religious leaders talk about Jesus, he's the one who broke the Sabbath. Do you see what's going on in this, in this exchange back and forth? We have some who describe people as he's the one who is healed. And then you have the others who are describing him. He's the one who broke the law. Jesus is the one who healed. The others say Jesus is the one who breaks the law. He's the troublemaker. Both these groups passionately devoted to God, sincere, probably good motives. And yet in the end, one gives a testimony about Jesus and and Jesus gives life to the lame man and the others seek to destroy the life of the one who heals. (laughs) Can you see how John is starting to divide things farther and farther apart? There are two more pieces I want, if we can hang in there, two more pieces to this puzzle that I think are important. First one, did you catch, did you catch that very strange uh, statement that Jesus makes to the man? Stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. Maybe for some of you this sounds perfectly normal, right? (laughs) But here's why I have a problem with it, because about four chapters later, and we're going to look at this story, there's a blind man that Jesus is talking with, and the whole issue is the disciples going, so Jesus, who was it who sinned that caused this man to be blind? Was it his sins or was his parents' sins? And Jesus rejects that whole kind of thinking. That's not how it works. You don't get blind because, you know, it's God's punishment on your sin. There's something else going on. But here, Jesus seems to be saying, hey, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So let's, let's dig into this just a little bit, okay? 
Notice Jesus, this is important, Jesus doesn't say what we actually usually think he says. That is, stop doing the sins that you've been doing your whole life that got you into this mess in the first place. If we look at the Greek very carefully, what he says is, stop doing the sins that you're doing right now. You're sinning right now, stop it. Which is interesting, right? Because this man's just been healed, he's in the temple, he's looking for Jesus, and Jesus is saying, stop the sinning that you're doing right now or something worse is going to happen to you. Which is interesting. Also, we usually assume something worse that's going to happen to you could be another illness or a worse illness or something like that. Could it also be what people in that culture would have thought was so awful about this guy? He was by himself. This is a collective culture. Some of you know about that more than others. This is a a culture where to have relationships matters more than anything, to have support and family. He had no one to help him. Could Jesus be saying, if you keep doing what you're doing right now, you're going to again find yourself in a place where no one is there to help you? So we might ask, what is it that he's doing right now that Jesus is saying is sinning? And I wonder, the only thing we know from the story that he's doing is this man is sort of caught in this back and forth between the religious leaders and Jesus. They're quizzing him saying, who did this? He said, it wasn't me, it was this guy who did it. And they say, who was it? I don't know. So he goes and he figures out, oh, it was Jesus who made me well. And he goes back to the religious leaders to let them know it was Jesus who made me well. Now, he doesn't say to the religious leaders, it was Jesus who told me to do this. He does say, Jesus was my healer. But is this man sort of caught in the middle here, trying to decide between Jesus and his healing and the religious leaders and their way of doing things? Is he caught in the middle? And it could it be that John here is simply talking to us readers too, saying, hey, you guys are going to have to decide one way or the other. Don't be caught in the middle. Maybe so. And here's the final, the final portion of this verse. Jesus makes another statement that's interesting. It's the one quoted in your bulletin, and it's the one that I think wraps this whole thing up. In his defense to the religious leaders, he says this, My father is working until now, and I too am working. Okay? First of all, we've got to understand another debate going on among the rabbis. And, and that is this, okay? This is about God and Sabbath, right? So they're thinking about the end of creation week. God rests from all his work of creation. He makes the day holy. So as the rabbis thought about this over the centuries, they kind of started to have a question. Does God stop working on Sabbath? And in fact, what would that mean? Uh, can God stop working on Sabbath? I mean, if God stops working, do we have some problems? You know, you would imagine God kind of, you've got the... You know, got the whole world in his hand, it's spinning, everything's going fine. And he says, oh, it's Sabbath. And he stops and, you know, we have a problem, right? This is what they're thinking. God, can he stop working and sustaining the world even on Sabbath? And so the answer that they came up with over time was, okay, so the work that God does after creation is simply the sustaining kind of, it's maintenance work. It's just keeping everything going. So a tweak here, a little bit there, and everything. At least that's the kind of work that God does on Sabbath. He's not doing new things. He's not being creative like he did in the creation week. He's simply maintaining. God is in maintenance mode. And so then when we're invited into Sabbath rest, it's the same kind of thing. Just sort of stop and, and quit doing the activity that is not necessary that could wait until sundown, right? So look what Jesus is saying here at the end of the story. God 
God may have rested from his creative work at the end of creation, but that doesn't mean, Jesus is saying, that God has been resting ever since. In fact, God sees that in this broken world, there is much, much to be done. God wants to bring about in this world the things that that first Sabbath promised all along. That first Sabbath promised perfect peace for the world. And we don't have that. It doesn't take long listening to the news this week to recognize. And God is at work to bring about that in the world. Think about how um, in Hebrew people would greet each other for Sabbath, right? If I say to you, Shabbat Shalom, you say... Shalom Shabbat, right? Shabbat Shalom means Sabbath peace. But this peace is a special kind of peace, isn't it? When we think peace, we think, I wish you Sabbath peace. I hope that you're able to find some relaxing music this afternoon and listen to the birds. And that's a good thing. We all need rest and that kind of peace, right? But when you wish someone Shalom, this is the kind of peace that is not only internal, but it's peace between me and God, peace between my neighbors and me, peace between me and the creation. This is peace where all the brokenness in the world is repaired. Shalom is that grand kind of peace that says now everything can be at rest because it is right. And until everything is right, there can be no rest. The people that Jesus is around and what Jesus is saying is we are hoping for a day. And what Sabbath promises every every single week is that hope in a day when God will bring shalom to the entire creation, right? Death and suffering and, and pain and crying will be no more. All of the things will be mended. Shalom will be a reality for the whole world. That's the day we long for when we think of Jesus' second coming. It's the day that every Sabbath promises because on Sabbath we get just a taste of what that kind of shalom is about. So God is at work, Jesus says. And he too, Jesus, is joining God in this work because where there is suffering, God is there. One author puts it beautifully like this. I I love how he puts this. Nope, we're skipping that for today. We'll come some other time. The author says, there can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. Is that true? There can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. Jesus looks at this pool and the man lying among all the other people at the pool and says, God is not resting today. God can't rest while humanity is suffering. That's God's work is to heal humanity. And my father, I working with my father, Jesus said, am joining my father in that work. Jesus mission to the world, just like his father's mission to the world is to bring healing and wholeness to broken people. It's not to uphold certain rules, although those often help, but when they get in the way, healing wins the day, right? So what about us? We who have every single week this 24-hour beautiful period of Sabbath that gives us that taste of what we're longing for, of, of shalom for the entire creation. What kind of mission does that give us when we experience this peace every single week? When we go back from Sabbath into our weekly lives, does it make us want to be the protectors of religion? Or does it make us want to be the agents of healing, the bearers of shalom to the world? I want to end with a story. Uh, A few minutes. 
It's a story that maybe you've heard. Uh, mentioned Tony Campolo before, so I thought I'd end with a story of his that, uh, that some of you may have heard, but it's worth repeating. Um, beautiful story from his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, uh, where he writes um, about, about his view of the kingdom of God. And I want to actually read uh, from his writing because he puts it so well. So just listen. It'll take a, just a few minutes, and it'll be our last section for today. Here's what he writes. He was visiting Honolulu, Hawaii, and he says, up a side street, he was up late at night, he found a place that was still open. So he writes, the, the fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? He said, I want a cup of coffee and a donut, said Tony Campolo. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly opened, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place. They sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely awkward and out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want me to do? What do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to go and get you a cake and sing you happy birthday or something? She says, come on, said the woman sitting there. She said, why, why do you have to be so mean? Uh, I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, I've never had anything from anyone in my life. I've never had a birthday party in my life. Why should I want one now? So when I heard that, writes Campalo, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She comes here every night. Why, why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. And what do you think, what do you say that you and I do something about that? What, what do you say you and I throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute little smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who was cooking in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. He says that we should go in with him and throw a birthday party for her tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiling. She said, That's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people. She's, she's so nice, and, and nobody has ever done anything nice for her. Look, I, I told them. If it's okay with you, I'll go back here to, I'll, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 a.m. and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. Uh, that was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. Uh, I'll make the cake. So the woman, at 2.30 the next morning, Kampala writes, I, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other end. I had the diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten word out to the whole street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me, he writes. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC for this event, he says. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. 
Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of her singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the cake, the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she just lost it completely and wept in front of all of us. Harry, the cook, mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow, blow them out. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow them out for you. After endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. We want to eat cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it, is it all right with you? If, is it okay? If, I mean, is it all right if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. It's fine. Take it home. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? Uh, I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly towards the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for, oh, skipped a parent. When the door closed, there was a sudden silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange that a sociologist was leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry, the cook, leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. So what do you think? Can we be that kind of church? (laughs) Maybe it's not exactly that that God is calling us to. But there's got to be something. There's got to be something in the world that God is calling us to do that provides healing for people who are broken. Because God's mission in the world is a mission of healing. God's work is bringing wholeness and healing to people. So can we recognize that? Do we hear God's call? And do we also hear in our own lives the good news that indeed God's work is healing work? As long as you have suffering, as long as you are crying out about something, God is not resting. He may not answer in the way that some of us wish he would. And we may wonder why he hasn't done certain things that we wish he would. But we know that he is not resting while we are suffering. God's work is for healing. God's work is to bring shalom. And as long as that is not the case in this world, God will work until that day when he comes again and brings healing and wholeness to all of creation. So may you find shalom. 
the peace of God in your own heart. May you come to know that God is a God whose work is for healing and wholeness and peace and goodness. And may you hear his invitation to join him in that work.